Thank you. It's good to see you all. Evening. Um, it's interesting that pass- that little bit of that passage which says the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Um, the actual Greek word, it's, it's less really accurately translated as blinded. It's more like obscured. And the kind of images, I don't know if you've ever been along a beach and you see this piece of kind of like glass. Um, some people collect it, don't they? And the kind of waves have washed over it. And you pick it up. And, and glass that's been in the sea for quite a while, it becomes kind of opaque. And it's often smooth and rounded. But if you hold it up to the light, you, you know it's glass because kind of light comes through it. But if you try to look through it, you wouldn't be able to really see anything. Everything is just kind of like opaque and obscured and complicated. And that's kind of the image that, that Paul's using there. He's saying like the God of this age, the enemy, the devil, the one who hates humanity because we're made in the image of God and we're kind of God's desire is to kind of redeem and save. And he hates humanity. He kind of like obscures our eyes. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with people who maybe don't have faith and you're kind of sharing maybe your testimony or your story or you're sharing about the gospel and it's like they're looking at you <laughs> it's like you're completely mad. They just can't get you. They, you know, they, they, they know you, they like you, they, hopefully they like you, but there's something that just like two and two to them makes nine. It just doesn't add up. None of this Christianity stuff quite adds up. And the reason I say that is because our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual engagement. When we're sharing our faith with people, when we're talking about Jesus and what he's meant to us, you know, we'd love for people to go, oh, yeah, oh, wow, it's so clear. Can I choose Jesus too? I mean, that would be lovely, right, if every conversation we ever had went like that. And the evangelist in the room, irritatingly, some of you I know that is your conversation every time that you have conversations with people and you just sort of, a pastor I used to work for back in Bristol many years ago, he would sort of, he would share stories of how he would sit on a bus and just get into conversation with people about Jesus. Or, you know, he'd meet the postman at the gate and by the time he'd got to the door with the post, he'd led him to Christ. I don't know about if that's your experience of evangelism and witness. It's, if I'm honest, not really always mine. I do my best sometimes to try and explain the gospel and people go, what? And like, I'm a vicar. In theory, I should know what I'm talking about, right? Trust me, I, I don't. But, you know... Why is that? Well, is it because we're useless at sharing our story? No, I don't think so. There's a spiritual battle going on. And it's like the enemy is trying to put his hands over people's eyes so that they can't hear and understand and receive your great words of wisdom and testimony. Now, we might think, well, that's rubbish then, isn't it? We're stuffed. Well, no, because God's power has the ability to kind of take the blinds away, to open people's eyes. If you remember the story of of Paul on the road to Damascus, do you remember that story? He was kind of going on his donkey and he, this, kind of, this voice from heaven comes and he falls off his donkey and, and he hears God speaking to him and he goes blind. Do you remember that story? And um, you know, God says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul's like, Wait, who, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, it's me, you've been persecuting me. You thought you were serving God. You thought you could see clearly, but actually you are so blind. And he becomes physically blind, almost to represent the true state of his heart, which was spiritual blindness. But God's able to break that blindness. And later on in that story, if you remember, Paul is taken, I love love the detail in the story, he gets taken to straight street to get set straight, and the blinds fall off his eyes, and he he can see clearly again. It's a great story of redemption. So God is able to take away the blinds on people's eyes, and sometimes it happens in an instant. Maybe that was your experience of hearing the gospel and going, wow, yeah, I see it. Maybe for others it's been a journey of learning and understanding. 
The God of this age, the enemy, blinds those who don't yet know him. He wants to try and stop them from encountering Jesus. And even the best arguments and discussions, and it's great to kind of be really into apologetics and learning to explain the gospel really well. It's great to be able to do that. And some of you in the room are brilliant at articulating your faith and giving reasons for your faith. We should all be able to do that to an extent. But all of us are called to witness Jesus, not just with what we say, but in who we are. And that's really what I want to talk a bit about tonight. By the way, that was just, you got that extra, that wasn't planned. Aren't you all glad? <laughs> I put my computer up the right way would help, wouldn't it? Okay, I'm going to pray. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, Lord, your word tells us that the God of this age has blinded or obscured the sight of those who don't yet know you. It's like they're looking through obscured kind of glass that doesn't allow them to see and fully understand who you are, Jesus. But the story does not end there. Because the God of this age is not Lord of all. Jesus, you are Lord of all. And you're the God of miraculous. You're the God of breakthrough. You're the God of transformation. And every one of us in this room who knows you and has followed you, Jesus, whether it's been for a few days or a few years or as long as we can remember or whether there was a breakthrough moment of encountering you, Jesus. That was because it was a moment where we became born of the Spirit, where the Spirit of God opened our eyes like Saul on the road to Damascus to see you, who you really are. And the God of this age was silenced and made dumb as our eyes were opened to encounter you. And Jesus, it's your longing that we as your people participate with the Holy Spirit in sharing the great news of Jesus to see many eyes opened to see them encounter you, Jesus. So would you help us, and just in a few moments tonight, help us to unpack these scriptures and what it might mean for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wonder, when was the last time you wrote a letter? Anyone, wrote, anyone written a letter this week? And I'm, I mean a proper letter, not a long WhatsApp or a text. Or Anyone written a letter this week? Wow, look at that. <laughs> It's kind of gone out of fashion, hasn't it? Okay, who's written a letter this month? Anyone? Oh, a few of you. Okay. I won't go around and ask what those letters were. You might not, you might want, not want to say. I've spoken about this before. I, I, I think I wrote in a kind of parish newsletter a few years ago. My mother, God bless her, um, has consistently written me a letter every week, even when she's on holiday, and then she sends irritating letters about all the wonderful places that I'm not at, uh, and describing them there. But she's written me a letter every single week from when I left at university when I was 18. And assuming that's four letters a month, and it's, Sarah will testify to this, it's at least four letters a month, sometimes more, but certainly four letters a month, since I left university to go to university at 18, that is over one and a half thousand letters. And what's really bonkers to me is I've got three brothers. And so she writes to all three of us like the same letter. So she'll write a letter and then she'll virtually change it. Uh, she'll write it again with a different name, obviously, at the top, because we have all got different names, myself and my three brothers. So she writes these letters. That is like nearly six and a half thousand letters. And then she writes to other people as well. That is a lot of letters that my mother has written. Uh, and I, in all honesty, I think in my entire life, I've written to her twice. I am such a bad son. <laughs> it's really bad, isn't it? It's a confession from a vicar. Um, 
And sometimes her letters are, your dad and I went to the tip this week. In fact, over the period of like the last 20 or 30 years, she used to go to the tip all the time. I don't know what it was she was dumping or why she felt she needed to tell me. It used to really irritate me. Sarah and I laughed about this the other day. We've now got to a point in life where we now go to the tip and it's quite exciting. And I have no one to write to to tell about this. So I'm telling you about it tonight. She writes just stuff that happens in the week. Sometimes it's exciting, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's um, challenging, sometimes it's just life. But she writes because uh, she loves us, I guess. Um, letters express care, they carry personal messages, they give encouragement, they voice concern, and they directly or indirectly, they kind of indicate love, don't they? And. I'm irritated by myself because, of course, I love to receive a proper letter. I mean, I'm not talking about letters we get from the tax office or stuff like that. We don't like those letters. But proper letters that are written are beautiful when we receive them. Uh, and I should write more, I know. They take time and effort, which is probably why lots of us don't do it these days, do we? We're instant. Reach for the phone, send a WhatsApp, send a message, text message. Take a photo, send a photo. It's quick, it's easy. But letters, they take time. You write your thoughts, you can write your more inmost feelings. You have to find an envelope, you have to address it or find the address if you don't know what it is. You've got to then go and get a stamp, you know, spend a fortune to buy a stamp these days. Then you've got to go out and find somewhere and post it, all of those things. But I'm guessing lots of us in the room probably, hidden away in a loft, have got some important letters somewhere. Any of you got those? Love letters maybe, yeah, a few important letters that people that really, you know, you care about sent to you. We've all got them. So here's the question. If your life was a letter, what would it say? <laughs> and I want to pause because I really want you to think about that. If your life was a letter and other people read the letter of your life, what do you think they would get? I think particularly in the days we live in now, lots of um, people who, who aren't engaged in faith or church or you know, unbelievers, however you want to phrase them, probably may never get to study God's word. But they'll study God's people. They'll know you, they'll encounter you, they'll see you at school, college, uni, on the gate, across the desk, in Tesco's, in Sainsbury's, in Waitrose, wherever you may choose to shop. They'll encounter you, they'll know you, and they'll read you by who you are. Jesus' work in our lives, I think, is like a letter showing, hopefully, his amazing love, his works, his grace. And that's what Paul is writing about here to this church in Corinthians. So that question again, if your letter, if your life is a letter, what's your letter saying to other people? Um, I don't, so we're reading um, 2 Corinthians. We've, we've been through 1 Corinthians. Many of you wouldn't have necessarily been here. You can go back and listen to the sermons. But 1 Corinthians is Paul writing to a church which he's planted, which he really loves, but which is in a real mess planted in Corinth, loads of things going wrong, lots of questions around sex, relationships, how to kind of uh, leaders, how, who to follow, who not to follow, people jostling for position, all these challenges. We, you can go back and hear the sermons. Paul writing to address these challenges in the church. He really loves them. 
2 Corinthians is another letter that follows it up later on. So he's writing to them, he's thinking about them, and he's trying to express something about who they are and who they're meant to be. I wonder if you've ever been anywhere, but if you've ever been in a garden, this happened to me the other day when I was outside in the garden, um, or maybe you're visiting a friend's place, got a lovely garden, and you, you, out the air, in the air, suddenly you get this whiff of jasmine. Have you ever been somewhere where you smell jasmine? It's really quite striking, isn't it? So you go from nothing to bam, suddenly jasmine hits you. And if, if you know what that smells like, it's kind of like amazing. It's kind of sweet and it's fragrant and it's kind of quite heady kind of scent. Or maybe you walk past a person in the street, or Mark Nish, and suddenly you get this lovely whiff before you panic <laughs> of something really nice. <laughs> you get this perfume and you look round, or you get this lovely aftershave and it lingers in the, in the air, even after the person's gone, and you, kind of, you smell it and you go, whoa, it's quite striking and it kind of hangs in the air. Even after the person's gone, it kind of lingers and it, it remains and it's kind of there and it's, it's something really like, oh, oh. You'd like to go back to the moment. When, when you smell the jasmine, you'd love to smell it more, or the perfume, you think, that's really, really nice. And it, it changes the atmosphere, it changes you. It's quite striking, and you know you've experienced it. And in 2 Corinthians 2, just a bit before, Paul calls Christians, refers to them as the fragrance of Christ. It's like he's saying, we give off this, um, from our spiritual pores, if you like, this aroma, this, this whiff of... Jesus and his victory over death, his victory over sin. Some of you may remember before you became a Christian, other Christians you met. And there was something about them. And it wasn't just their words or even the way they lived their life. There was something about them. Every now and then, whether you would have known it or not, you were getting this whiff of Jesus. I remember when I was sort of um, 17, when I was trying to understand faith, I came from a Christian family. I knew all about church. I knew about the cross. I didn't quite really get it. But I'm, I met this bunch of Christians that just seemed to have so much life in them and joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And they kind of reeked of Jesus. Just be, and you kind of wanted to be around them. I think sometimes it can have that effect where people are drawn in. I think sometimes, too, it can have the opposite effect, that some people back away because it's like, Paul talks about this, it's the kind of the breath of life, but it's also the stench of death. And for some people, it's, they can't cope with it and they back away. They back away from Jesus because some people do back away from Jesus. But when we go around places, we carry that in us, this aroma of Christ. You won't necessarily know it, but it's striking. It's unexpected for some people, a bit like that, that perfume that lingers in the air. And it's real and it's powerful. And trust me, people do physically, emotionally, and spiritually experience and react to it, both in a really good way, but also sometimes in another way. Uh, back in Bristol, where we used to live, I got to knew a guy who had been a warlock uh, involved in the occult, all sorts of stuff. And he used to talk about, before he, and he became a Christian, he kind of repented, turned his life around. But he used to talk about that fact, that when he was walking along the street... And he was often, you know, mocking people, all sorts of things, as he would wander around, doing spells, all sorts of dark stuff. But when he encountered spirit-filled Christians, he had to cross over the road. He couldn't stay on the same side of the road with them. The, the, the sense of Jesus, he came to understand, was so real and so powerful, the fragrance of Jesus, of his resurrection power, and the kind of his victory over death, 
caused a physical reaction within him that he would feel sick, he'd feel kind of dizzy, and he would have to cross over the road to walk on the other side of the road away from the spirit-filled Christian. I love that. Jesus is Lord. And people walking on the street, he would say, you know, they, they were completely oblivious. They would just walk past. But he knew that he had encountered Jesus. And later, through wondering why the power that he had within him was weaker than this power of Jesus, he said it was irritating because so many of these Christians had no idea of the power they had. They would just blindly walk around. But he set him on a journey to find who Jesus was. We carry Jesus around in us. We carry his fragrance um, scripture's full of all sorts of metaphors and pictures to help us understand what our relationship with God is like. So he's the potter. You can read in the kind of Old Testament, and we're the clay, being shaped by this beautiful master craftsman. He's the ruler, he's the king, and we're his subjects. Um, he's the owner of the land, and we're the stewards who are called to look after the land on his behalf. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep of his pasture. All sorts of analogies and, and kind of metaphors that you could come up with. But here in chapter 3, going back to where I started, this metaphor changes and Paul calls believers, calls you and me, those of us who know and love Jesus, he calls us a letter of Christ. We're a letter and God himself is the author who's writing this letter. Um, I've often heard it said, and in fact I've often said it, I'm sure, that the Bible, this God's word, this is God's love letter to the world. And it is, it's true. This is God's longing of who he is and a revelation of his father heart and his power and his glory and his wonder and his longing to redeem the world it's his love letter to the world um you know we write love letters to those we love when we're away from them to try and reveal our heart and to explain our longing our love for that person well this is god's letter of love to the world and that's true but in this passage paul explains that everyone who's received jesus as lord well they're kind of a letter to the world, an individual letter too, which is quite a thought. Go back to that first question I asked you. If your life is a letter, what's it saying? <laughs> I think maybe, if we're really honest, that may be a bit scary or a bit of a pressure. I think some people, maybe their anxiety is rising when I ask that question, because I think a lot of us don't like a mirror being held up in front of us, possibly physically, but certainly maybe spiritually. What do you see when you look in a mirror at your own life? Do people see Jesus as they look at us and read our lives? Or do they hear more my moaning and grumbling about life, my shortfallings, my unbelief, my bad language? And maybe a bit of soul-searching and honesty is no bad thing. I think that's good. I remember my, one of my brothers, he had a poster on the wall of his bedroom. I remember it from when I was really young. And it was something along the lines of, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Which is quite a heavy thing to have on your poster when you're a teenager, but there we are. Um, and I think that's a passage that actually Billy Graham used to use a lot in a lot of his kind of missions. And he would use it in the context of, particularly in the States, where lots of people culturally thought about themselves as being a Christian. You know, I'm American, so therefore I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday, therefore I'm a Christian. My parents sent me to a Christian school, therefore I'm a Christian. And Billy Graham would say, all those things are good and helpful and great, but they don't make you a Christian. And he used to ask the question, if you were put in court and you said you're a Christian, would there be, and you know, it was against the law to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
What is there in our lives that marks us out as lovers and followers of Jesus? Well, Paul writes this letter to try and ask that question. I'm not going to say much more, but I want to play um, a video. If you were here for 1 Corinthians 1, I played this really helpful video that explains the context of the 1 Corinthians letter. And I'm going to play the second one for 2 Corinthians, just the first bit, which kind of explains why Paul wrote this letter, because it's really important. You know, we read the Bible, but 2 Corinthians is a letter written to a bunch of people, like just like us, a church that was struggling. A father's written this letter. And this video just helps contextualize that a bit for us. Thanks, Doug. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called second or two Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all, of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor, he earned a meager living through manual labor, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was often homeless, and to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul, they were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. And so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying that God's spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. 
The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded, not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful, just like Jesus himself. Now, this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. It's helpful, isn't it? So when Paul writes this letter, remember it's, it's a letter. Letters were obviously the main way of communicating, handwritten, hand-delivered, and sealed by the writer to show who it was from. When the Corinthians, Paul says, listened to the gospel, when Paul shared it with them, when he explained who Jesus was and they believed, the Holy Spirit started working in their hearts, transforming them, cleansing them, healing them, mending them, fixing them, challenging them about their ways of living, who they were, helping them to focus on serving God. And, and even their mistakes, even the messes they got themselves into and the kind of stuff that went wrong afterwards, none of that could erase what the Holy Spirit had begun to write in their hearts and lives. They were becoming this letter that's been written for the world to read. In, in verse, um, Paul says to them in verse 3, he calls them a letter of Christ and says the author, the one doing the writing, is the Holy Spirit. My life is his letter. Your life is God's letter. That is both a mind-blowing and slightly scary, if I'm honest, reflection. Your life is God's letter. So what sort of things is he writing? What sort of things does he want to write going forward? The Holy Spirit wants to write in our hearts so that you can read that letter too, that your sins have been forgiven, that you are redeemed you don't stand condemned before God. And that truth is supposed to bring us peace, peace that really lasts. The Spirit of God also writes in our hearts that we can call him Father. That's what Jesus said, call God our Father. Abba, a great translation of that is Papa or Daddy. We can have that sort of level of intimacy. And that God says that you are his children. And therefore you share in his inheritance. You've got rights. Uh, not just in, in eternity, but here on earth. You're, you're part of God's family. That reality should bring you hope. When stuff is tough, like many are facing, 
God is your father. He's the good, good father. And you're his kids. He wants to protect you, love you, nurture you, encourage you, deliver you. should bring you hope. And also what the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts, and this is an ongoing letter that he's writing, is, is what life is supposed to all be about. That you're created to know God, to love him more and more and more in an unfailing, kind of un- unfolding way, and to serve him and have a purpose for your life. That fact brings you purpose. Every single one of you in this room has got a unique purpose and calling. God wants that to be revealed to you. And as I read this passage earlier on, as I kind of reflected on this bit of what it means to be a letter, it it does remind me of Isaiah 31, and we heard about that. This prophet was writing 600-something years before Jesus was born. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet speaking to God's heart, talking about a new covenant, a new promise from God that was to come. We're going to share in a couple of minutes communion, which is all about the new covenant. The old covenant under the law, under Moses, where you had to obey the law in order to be kind of sanctified, in order to be redeemed and held by God. You had to be obedient to every letter of the law. But under the new covenant, Jesus, who paid the price for everything on the cross. This is um, Jeremiah 31. Listen to these words, these prophetic words of, of Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah. It says this, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my law deep within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and will never again remember their sins. I'll put my law deep within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. You know, this, this letter, what Paul's writing to, to the church here, he's explained to them that God's longing is to write his law, his heart, his, his way of being, his kingdom principles on our hearts. To write the truth on the hearts of those who know and love him. And that those words that he's writing on our hearts actually are visible to other people. They're They're evident. And as the Holy Spirit writes these words, we grow, we mature, we learn more, we, and we respond in faith back to Jesus. And so our, our letter becomes a better read for other people. It undergoes revision, it undergoes editing and correction. It's improved, it's updated, it's re- reworked or developed. That's the great news of the gospel of grace, is that we're not kind of a once written letter that sits on a dusty shelf. God is constantly by his spirit helping us, updating us, refining us, editing us to make it even more beautiful reads to the world. You've probably heard the expression, I can read you like a book. I wonder what people make of you and your faith, of me. So what are people reading as they get to know us? What does our living letter reveal If we're Christ's letter, then his storyline should be our storyline. He's the principal character. He's the shaker and mover of our adventure that we're living. 
And our desire should be for the Spirit to write the wonder of Christ on our hearts in such a way that even those who want nothing to do with religion or church suddenly kind of take notice of this beautiful letter that God has written and, and is writing in you. So I guess as I finish, I want my prayer to be increasingly, Lord, would you write as much as you want? Will you edit and shape and create and craft a beautiful letter so that when people look at my life, they don't see me, but they see you, Jesus? That's the prayer of John the Baptist, isn't it? Lord, may I decrease so that you might increase. It's a really good prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. But it's one I really urge you to pray, those of you that know and love Jesus. May, may I decrease, Lord. May there be less of my flesh, less of my debris, less of my mess, so that you might come and fill all those spaces. And the wonder of that is not that you decrease in who you are and you become less you. No, you actually become more the you you were always supposed to be. The redeemed, glorious, adventurous, transformed, healed, refined, hope-fueled, peace-filled you that God had in mind when you were in your mother's womb. A beautiful life, a life that shouts Jesus, a life that smells of Jesus, better than any of Mark Nish's amazing, I was going to say perfumes, but I think they're aftershave, aren't they, Mark? (laughs) So that we reek of Jesus and that Jesus is seen in us. Letters are really personal And God wants to express really personally to the world through you that your life becomes an open letter to the world read by a wide audience. You know, you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. You may be the only encounter that they have of Jesus that leads them to look at God's word perhaps and encounter him. So what is our life, this letter of Jesus telling others about him? What does my life look like? Lord, may our lives truly be love letter lives, your love letter to the world.